how can you um, best adapt to assist to a, to a schedule that is maybe not perfectly aligned with your own biological rhythm? Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. What is the cost of lack of sleep and rest to our health, to our relationships, to our performance? That's what we're here to talk about today on the Ultra Habits Show with Sarah Bendick. She is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, and has recently published a book, The Hidden Power of the Downstate. Now, I have been trying to get Sarah on the show for a long time. And as they say with authors, you got to hit them when they're vulnerable. And that's when they've just published a book. And it was truly a pleasure to get her on the show. I really took an interest in her work a few years ago during the throes of ultramarathon training when I was trying to understand how I could access more energy and sustain the energy required throughout my business day after running 20, 30, 35 kilometers at 4 to 4.30 a.m. in the morning. Clients didn't care. Kids didn't care. My wife didn't care. And sugar and coffee wasn't cutting it. And on the back of her work, I really started to understand the power of napping and how it could completely reset my mind state and my state if I engaged it appropriately throughout the day. And I went on a journey with that. And I'm super excited to have her on the show today. We're talking about her new work in The Hidden Power of the Downstate, which really investigates the wider context of restfulness, not just the nap or sleeping, but how we can position ourselves throughout the day towards a downstate, which really helps us deal with the opposite end of the spectrum, which he terms is the upstate, and really understanding how we can move effectively between those states is what sets us up for really dynamic energy management. Now, Sarah was a blast to have on the show. You know, she's uh, she's been continuously federally funded by the National Institute of Health, the National Science Foundation, and Department of Defense Office of Naval Research, which is DARPA. They do some really heavy-duty stuff in terms of military research. She's been awarded the Office Naval Research Young Investigator Award in 2015, and she's been published from woe to go. Interestingly enough, her interest in psychology and psychiatry started a bit later. She originally wanted to get into drama and dance. And after college, her experience working in the psychiatry department at Bellevue Hospital in New York inspired her to study the brain and how to make humans smarter through better sleep. And she ultimately received a PhD in psychology from Harvard and then completed a postdoc at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in UC San Diego. You're gonna really enjoy this conversation. Now, I think we do live in an era where sleep isn't for suckers, right? We are finally in a place where organizations, cutting edge organizations are realizing the value of sleep. But I think 
whilst from a societal perspective, we're starting to understand that value in terms of driven individuals implementing it, we still have a ways to go. We still have our foot on our own necks when it comes to this perceived level of productivity that we need to have. So really, really listen to this conversation, take what you can. There's some habits that Sarah leaves us with is how we can start to orientate ourselves to this downstate. Anyways, folks, I'm going to love and leave you. I am leaving to the United States, going back to California for a month. Tomorrow, the show will be going on. There will be an episode a week, but I'm out of here, guys. Sarah, welcome to Ultra Habits. I have finally roped you into the show. You're a very, very difficult woman to to pin down, but I'm so, so happy that you are joining us this morning here in Australia. How are you? Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, look, I have, um, I'm a fan of your work. I read Take a Nap, Change Your Life uh, some time ago, and the context behind that is I was running ultra marathons and training 20 or 30, 40 K sometimes in the morning before work four, four thirty, And I just could not get beyond 10 AM with my brain functioning well. And I was like, well, look, I can't keep pumping coffees into me. I've got to ship something or else I just can't sustain this. And that's when I really started to dive into the competitive advantage of sleeping. Um, so You've written a new book, and we're talking about the power of the downstate. So can you explain to our audience what is the downstate? Like, what is that? Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks a lot for um, the shout out to Take a Nap, Change Your Life. That was a while ago, and I still think, you know, it's amazing. It's still relevant. I thought at that time, well, of course, people are going to start downstating. You know, people are going to start napping. The perfect little thing to do in the middle of the day, but still it's you know, you still have to conv convince people to take a break. Um, so this book, The Power of the Downstate, the, the idea is that the downstate is all of the restorative activities that we need to do on a daily basis to keep ourselves fit and full of energy and uh, decrease our stress and then make it so that we can actually get benefits from sleep at night so that we're not getting to bed so stressed out um, and really creating, uh, you know, understanding that we are, rhythmic animals. Um, just like every plant and animal on the planet, we are based on rhythms and that these rhythms mean that we have an upstate where we're optimized for energy expenditure and being active and running ultramarathons. Um, and then we immediately after that, there's going to be a downstate where we need to do some deep replenishing work. And that's where the downstate happens. Um, and so, of course, we've spent so much time thinking about the downstate is just sleep. But my recent research looking in the autonomic nervous system um, and how you can really manipulate and kind of uh, work with your own cycles to achieve more of that really strong positive downstate shows that you can get downstates during the day and that you can optimize your training schedules, your exercise schedules, your eating schedules to get even more out of your downstate at night. When I got sober, so I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. They used to talk about this acronym called HALT, Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. And I started to really realize how what we called alcoholic thinking really became quite prevalent when I had lack of sleep, paranoia, 
just really what we call stinking thinking. And I'm actually of the belief, and this might be a huge statement, that a lot of what we perceive as mental health issues, now not pathology, like just basic shit, is just a lack of sleep. Would you, what, what would you say to that statement? I mean, if you look at studies of kids, right? So kids are sleeping less than they ever have before. And they, you know, they need way more sleep than they're getting. Their brains are developing, their moods are developing, their hormones are developing, their emotion regulation strategies are developing. And what you see is that, um, that there's a very large increase in diagnosis of ADHD and that kind of, you know, those kind of behaviors that are, you know, internalized behaviors such as depression and anxiety, but also externalized behaviors, lack of inhibition, um, you know, not listening to your parents, not doing what you're told. And, um, and so there are studies where people take these kids and just have them stay in bed for 10 hours. And they have to stay in bed for 10 hours. And that's the whole study. And what they find is a decrease in those symptoms of ADHD that, you know, prior to the study, they were being diagnosed. And after the study, they had fewer diagnoses and they had fewer symptoms. So that quality of increasing sleep um, has so many implications, right? It, it's, it's not just about, you know, we study cognition, but then there's also we study emotion and then there's also your heart rate and there's, you know, there's also your recovery from the day and your recovery from your, from your emotional experiences that day. And you need sleep for all those things. And so for sure, and that's the same as, you know, for adults as, as it is for adolescents, we don't sleep enough to make up for all of the stuff that we do during the day. That's stressful. Yeah. I find it ironic that, you know, in our drive to survive as a humanity or human race, we've created these comforts and we've created infrastructure to how we live our life. But in many ways, that's locked us into this kind of way of being, which is moved us away from our natural state. And now we're trying to get back to that natural state. So in many ways, by creating what we perceive as comforts through and I would, you know, I would say that, yeah, okay. Comforts, yeah. things to make it faster and easier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. We've stopped, we've stopped chopping our own vegetables, you know. We've stopped, we've stopped uh, paying attention to the strongest circadian indicator on the planet, the sun. You know, we've, yeah, there's, there's so many things that, you know, that, that kind of natural rhythm of your own daily life cycle um, or daily cycle and life cycle, we've stopped paying attention to all of those signals. Um, and I think you're right. It's taken us away and it actually is more stressful, right? It, it be, because now we have to actually think through and make up for things that should naturally be taken care of, right? You know, the, that if, if we paid attention to those natural cycles, it would actually mean less thinking on our part. We wouldn't need all these different conveniences, right? Because we would just be doing something that was already in sync with a natural cycle. This may be hard for you to answer, but I'm going to ask you this question anyways. We talk about prehistoric, the prehistoric human or the human prior to the Industrial Revolution or even way before that, like when there, there's an existential threat of a lion or a tiger. Do you think that that individual, albeit there was some real existential threats, 
they had a better regulated autonomic system than we do today. Like surely that would have been a more stressful way of living in many ways. What's your opinion on that? I know that's it's, it's such just a, it's such opinion. a great question, right? Because there's constantly that sort of thought of, oh, it was so much better back in the day, right? But then you have Steven Pinker saying, no, 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 we are way less violent now. You know, we have way more ability to, you know, self-determine. And so there's there's differences in terms of the, you know, personal freedoms, um, you know, personal being able to, you know, my job is just to sit and think, right? Like that probably didn't happen in paleo times, right? <laughs> like that's pretty cush, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. exactly. So there's a lot to be gained from modern medicine. I mean, give me a break. You know, that's really the best. Um, and uh, and, I, and and we've also gotten into some sort of levels of denial that we are animals. Right. And so probably back in the day, there were you know, I've been watching all these Viking shows on Netflix and there was probably a, was probably a lot more. D danger the plague uh you know and marauding hordes of people who came with axes like there was just a lot more daily fears of or daily stresses i would say but there was also probably a lot more robustness right that people were stronger right that they could just you know they they first of all they were out all day long working right there was a lot more physical labor just as part of their jobs People live longer now, but do they live longer into, you know, deep health longer? I don't know. Like, it's, it's a good question, right? So, of course, people lived till they were 40, and that was, a, that was an old age. So, it's hard to kind of have that rosy glow and think back and think it was better because there were so many things that are great now. But I also think we are not so far out of touch with these natural rhythms that we can't just access them you know but they will take they take you know as much as our frontal lobes are the brain areas that have brought us away from our natural state it's exactly those areas of self-regulation and decision making and control that allow you to actually say well i'm going to actually now go back to those states and pick up the benefits yeah this may sound crazy but when I started running ultras and running, particularly in the trail. I live in the bush and we have our own veggie and fruit garden and we do our own stuff. And when I'm running out in the bush or when I'm out there, it feels like I'm supposed to be there. Like there's a deep sense of connection there. And I'm not talking in an airy fairy way. Like there is something there where it's a spiritual experience. Like, I feel like that's the state I'm supposed to be in and that's where I'm actually supposed to be. And as soon as my feet hit the dirt, and this isn't, you know, this isn't the function of endorphins because I'm not running yet, but as soon as my feet hit the dirt, there is an immediate psychological freedom that occurs from just being out there and you know the japanese have these forest baths and you know like there's a real relevance in moving back to our natural state and one of the things i love about your message because i have intuitively started to realize this over the last years <clears throat> is the advantage of working in waves right so i i i i work hard and I push myself and then I pull out. And 
pulling out is actually physically pulling out my environment where I live. Everything is very much separated from the chaos of the matrix, as I call it. And for me, I needed to create that physical barrier because it reminds me as soon as I'm driving up the mountain to home to kind of just start to switch off into the downstate. So that's what I want to get back to. So we're talking about the downstate. Conversely, what's the upstate then? Well, the upstate is where you are stressed, right? The upstate is, and it's, it's actually where you can tolerate stress. It's where you are your most um, supported by your physiology, by your energy levels, by your brain power um, to deal with the world, right? That it, it's actually, you know, and, and that, that's, I think, the part of um, the key to sort of thinking about that there are these natural things like the sun that gives you this natural upstate during the day and the moon the downstate at night, but there's also, you know, and, and, and that our brains and our, in our metabolism and our muscles are primed to have the most, you know, the highest metabolism, your frontal lobe is at its uh, best working uh, power levels. If I can say that um, in the morning at the same time that you have the metabolism high, um, your muscles are ready and uh, and well, they can they can adapt to actually many different time periods. But your cardiovascular system is is working at its height in the morning as well in that daytime. So there are some natural periods that we have um, that we're primed and we're supported to experience the upstate. And so that's part of the idea is that you know can you create you know schedule your day, create your behaviors that align with um, getting the most out of your upstate, and then at the same time, taking time to bring stuff down during the day as well, right? Because, you know, we do a lot of stressful things during the day, um, and we have this kind of tendency to just ramp up. Our stress just ramps up across the entire day, and by the end of the day, we are kind of exhausted, right? We've been spent, um, a lot of people who, you know, sit at the computer all, every day or have to run around and take care of a lot of things like, you know, there isn't a lot of time in the day to really take a break. And so the idea is, well, if you keep ramping up all day long, once you get to your bedtime and you expect the bedtime to be the time where all of that downstate happens to take care of the upstate, that's probably not feasible, right? It's asking too much of sleep and it's even hard to get to sleep when you're so wired. So along with kind of working your, um, your own personal behavior so that you can kind of push a lot of the uh, energy um, depleting activities to the daytime when you have this natural upstate, can you also take moments during the day to bring yourself down to a calmer place um, so that you are... Uh, self-regulating and allowing yourself to do some deep breathing um, and going into nature, truly going into nature. Um, I think that we undersell, we underappreciate that we are natural animals. And that that moment that you said that you just kind of get your feet on the ground and you start, you know, I think of so many people who live in cities and how rare it is for people who live in cities to just be in a forest right? To be at a beach or to be somewhere 
you know, we don't have enough parks, right? We don't have enough of that natural experience because it does just bring you straight down, right? It just brings you to this place of calm that we need. We need more of that stuff. Sometimes I don't realize how much I'm on the edge until I get out there. And I almost kind of, as soon as my feet hit the dirt, like I'm almost in tears, right? Because it's like, fuck, I can breathe, right? And yeah, it's incredible. How does an individual know or learn their ideal integration process between upstate and downstate? Like, is that personal? You know, to me, it's actually, I mean, there are, of course, going to be differences in terms of like when exactly is people's upstate and downstates. But I think there are some real universals, you know, like we, we know for the majority of people, uh, if you think about eating, your metabolism is at its height in, in, in the day, in, you know, and, and, if, and your insulin, which is the stuff that brings the glucose into your cells, um, that's allows you to get the most efficient processing out of your food, right? That's at its height during the day. And, it, and then by afternoon, it starts to decrease. Um, and that's pretty universal across, mo you know, most people. So um, by then, once your insulin starts to decrease across the day, eating later and later in the evening means that you're leaving more of those sugars in your blood and not being used into your organs, right? And so that's going to be turned into fat, right? That's not actually going to be useful energy. So even though, you know, there's a lot of sort of like, I want to have my own individual plan. And I also kind of think, but you don't have to, you know, <laughs> like that's a lot of work that you're doing to try to think about like, what's my individual. There's also, you could also just try to like sink into these natural rhythms that are already there. And, you know, the idea of front loading your calories, right? Like if you could get 50% of your calories in, um, in the, during the day between like nine and noon or whatever, right. Then, uh, that means that you're having less and less food across the evening. And that's also going to affect your sleep because the later you eat, the further you push your melatonin onset, right? Melatonin onset is the melatonin is the, is a sleep hormone. So there's all these systems affect each other. So even though I think that, you know, everybody wants to have their own, you know, tailor-made system, it's the same with exercise. You know, like exercise, if you're doing an intense exercise, that's going to spike your sympathetic nervous system, what I call rev. It's going to rev you up. It doesn't matter who you are. That's, that happens, right? If you're a super, you know, fit, trained, well-trained person, it doesn't spike it as much and you've got to really push yourself to get a maximum spike, but you want that spike, right? You want that because that means that afterwards you're going to have a super strong restorative response and recovery from the parasympathetic system. But the timing of that, you know, the timing of that exercise, that intense exercise, that cardiovascular push, that is going to be universal because uh, in terms of when that's going to happen, you know, you do your intense hit exercise, you do your intense run, and that um, sympathetic revved up response is going to happen um, right at that moment. And it's going to decline depending on your fitness at some sort of, you know, regular decline. And so, you know, pushing that to as early in the day as possible is going to mean that 
your sleep won't get disturbed, but also that that restorative response that comes afterwards is going to coincide with your slow wave sleep because, and that's that deep sleep that, and, and, then, there, and then those two systems are going to resonate. And you're going to have a more restorative response. So there are small variations in individuals, but overall, you're just an animal, you know, and, it, and you have just these responses. And across the day when you're awake, when you get to sleep, the first sleep you get is always going to be slow wave sleep. That, that's just what happens, right? So, that, so, so in general, it's like, yeah, I like the idea of everyone doing what works for them. And at the same time, there's a lot of things you don't need to overthink because it's just part of the natural system. It's part of the natural rhythms of the day. What's the implication for shift workers with all this? Like, you know, we talk about shift workers, doctors, people working at not like high risk, right? Like we look at communities where like Alaska, you know, where it's like daytime for six months and people are going crazy. Like what's the implication for people that aren't or don't work with the natural rhythms of life? Have you yeah. gone into that? Yeah. In the book, I talk a lot about this issue, um, particularly the problem with light at night. Um, so we know, you know, from many years of work right now showing that sh shift work isn't great, right? It's not healthy. Um, it, it causes increased risk for metabolic disorders, cardiovascular problems. Um, it even, you know, has been related to some increases in cancer rates. So but a lot of people need to shift work. It's not, you know, like, so it's, it's like a privileged thing to say, just don't do it, you know? So obviously people shift work and they're going to continue to shift work because we have a 24-7 culture. So the question is, how can you um, best adapt to assist to a, to a schedule that is maybe not perfectly aligned with your own biological rhythm? Um, so there's lots of things that can be done. You know, one of the things that people say is that, that is very helpful is to stay on that shift work schedule as much as possible, even when you're not working. And, and one of the problems is that people, you know, they might work at night and then they'll have a whole bunch of things they want to do in, in the day and be with their kids. And, but then they're switching midweek, right, between being up at night and being up in the day and then being, and it's the, the long haul of that is not, is not going to work. So there are, you know, the idea is what can you do to maintain, if you're going to be on that schedule <clears throat> and this is, you know, this is your life then do your best to maintain a flip schedule all the time. And also, you know, and that means during the day, if you are exposed to bright light, wear sunglasses, wear um, blue light blockers, because it's truly the blue light that is the most influential for your circadian rhythm. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things people can do to create spaces that are dark enough. Um, and then also use napping, right? Use napping at specific times prior to the work so that you are fit and ready for working when you should be. Um, and, and, you know, you haven't been work up all day doing life and then try to work all night, right? But take that prophylactic nap, which is a nap before work, so that you can actually be alert and not be a danger to yourself and others during the shift work. So there's a, you know, there, there's lots of things that people 
you know, that, that corporations should be doing for people who do shift work, right? It's really, I think the onus should be on the companies who are creating shift work opportunities. And then, you know, then you've got to support the people who are in that state. Are you finding corporates, uh, particularly in places, I guess, like the Silicon Valley, are acknowledging sleep and creating space for that? Like, are you engaging more with corporates that seem to have their shit together when it comes to sleep? Or is this a real slow roll? Um, I think that there's some kind of smaller companies that are kind of into it, you know, or like the Googles that say things like that. But but to me, it's just, it's it's not part of, you know, clearly the culture where we have, um, you know, what, where was it Amazon recently? There was something where, you know, there was obviously a very toxic culture that was, you know, that you had to be available 24 seven. Um, and, you know, the phone constantly by you and have to acknowledge your boss's 3am email at 3am, you know, so I think that there may be sort of a nod to sort of get people to take a job, but, and then, but I think that the truth is, is that we're not anywhere near where we could be um, in terms of uh, really considering people's rhythms. I think the pandemic in some cases was great for people because they got to just experience their own rhythms for, you know, even though there was a lot of fear and terror, which wasn't good. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, the, the upset of all of our rhythms, we had things established and then the sudden pandemic that threw everything up in the air was terrifying. But then there was a moment where it's like, well, okay, no one's telling me when to be to work and no one's telling me, you know, and I, you know, some people have kids and the, you know, all that stuff that had to also be managed, but a lot of people really found their own rhythm and they kind of are, you know, freaked out by having to lose it now, now that they've got to go back to work and back to the office and, you know, back to expectations. Yeah. The pandemic was interesting. Um, particularly watching people having to kind of sit with themselves now and uh, sit with their wives and husbands and realize, oh shit, I don't really like this person or <laughs> I don't really like myself or what am I beyond the label of my job, right? Like there was extreme disruption. Identity, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Identity, like who am I now, right? And, um, you know, I think reflecting on my own journey, you know, I was mentored by someone who significantly shifted like he's now got a lot of balance but he set a pace in the organization we were in where he would answer emails at 4 5 a.m and he just set a pace for us younger people and the messaging was like the hustle hard culture and it was a badge of honor i think i think theoretically and you know anecdotally the language is shifting on that but whether or not it's actually being realized i i'm i'm with you i i'm not 100 and 10% sure about that. Like, I think, you know, I've had discussions with colleagues before where I all run at 10 a.m. for 20 minutes or whatever. And they'll be like, oh, that's not, I'm like, dude, you smoke cigarettes for like an hour a day, bro. Like, you know, like, you know, it's, it, it's funny what people will consider not productive. And yeah, sometimes it feels counterproductive to take a run when I have a deep problem, but it actually gives me solutions or 
to take oh, a nap. It's, it's know, the like, solution. Yeah, right, the solution is right. right there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I think, um, you know, there, there's I one of the one of the ma- major um, surprises in the book actually in the Power of the Dance State was talking to um, an a, a world champion MMA fighter, uh, Glover Teixeira. I don't know if you've gotten to that part in the book in the, in the exercise chapter. Um, and I, you know, I didn't really know that much about exercise. I follow exercise research, but I had to really do a deep dive. And I, my friend, John Nandor, who is trains with uh, Glover, he said, you really got to talk to this guy because he's doing it very differently, right? So he's now, I believe 42, and he's the oldest first time world champion of MMA. And he grew up um, just playing hard, working hard, training hard every day, all the time, redlining as much as possible. And that was his, you know, that was the result he was looking for was like, I want to be at my absolute end, you know, at the end of every training. And by the time he hit 36, he's, he was, he was failing. Right. And he wasn't getting, he didn't get the world championship. And he's like, what the hell's going on? You know, he went into full burnout mode which is, I think happens a lot with athletes because they just burn super bright and then they give out, right? Because your body can't take it. And then he started in with the Performance Institute um, in Las Vegas, but he also started reading books like, you know, Deepak and Eckhart Tolle and just started saying like, okay, well, what, you know, maybe I've been doing it wrong. And then they got him on a training schedule that was like a third the amount of training he was doing. And he said he felt so much shame and guilt every day. They're like, this is all I'm doing. What are you talking about? This is all I'm doing. And his performance, because he had the training, obviously, the years of training. So he had all the skill, but he needed to do like, you know, at least two thirds less. And then his training just took off and he became the oldest world champion. You talk about set points. Let's because that that's relevant. I think yeah. in sports we talk about adaptation. Yeah. Right. Like your body adapts, particularly when you sleep. Can you can you dive into set points? What is that? Hey guys, it is RJ here and wanted to quickly take a break to say that I am so stoked that you have continued to support the show. Now, a lot of you moved from audio to YouTube. Some of you that were on YouTube have moved to audio. It does not matter. Your support is helping us cut through all that damn noise. We really appreciate everything you've done to support us thus far, and we hope that we continue to bring you game-changing insights and information. Now, back to... Our guest, enjoy the rest of this episode. Well, there's this concept that is in the book called Recovery Plus, right? And there's this, you know, so if you think about a, if you think about just a rhythm, it just goes up and down and up and down and up and down and up. And it always kind of, you know, you get back to some zero, zero sum, right? And the truth is, is that that's not what athletes want to do, right? That's not what anybody really wants to do, right? You want to get smarter, faster, stronger, all those things. And so in sports, there's this idea of compensation and supercompensation. It's sort of, you know, take running off that idea to say that it's in the down state, right? It's in the recovery time where you're making up all the glycogen, where you're making, you're, you're, you're generating all the energy that you need 
to repair, restore yourself for what from what you just did, you know, the day before, but also to give yourself a little bit of extra so that you can push yourself a little bit harder the next time, right? And that's the recovery plus, right? So it's not actually staying at the same set point. You're constantly ratcheting your set point up. So the, you know, it's a squiggly line that continues to push yourself up. But the only way that you can actually accelerate and make that thing go, you know, on a diagonal is by spending more time in the downstate. And that's the sort of, I think in some cases, you know, it, it feels like the opposite of what's, what you think you should be doing, right? You should be pushing yourself harder. And it seems antithetical to success is to, is to actually relax. But I think that, you know, he, he proves it. You know, people who, and a lot of pro athletes now are really considering this, right? I mean, I think you can talk about that, right? It's just how important it is to, for your emotional state, but for your physical state as well, for your heart, to just stay in a relaxed state for as long as possible. Like for his, for his week of, um, I think they were in Dubai or something, for his fight week, um, where he won, he spent 20 hours a day in bed. Yeah, it's and, and I guess for the high achiever type A person or the person that can't sit still, because that's generally what you see in a lot of these pursuits, it's almost like, like ripping their own face off to really stop. Because if I'm moving, I'm productive. If I'm moving, I'm moving towards something. And you're quite right. I mean, in the world of ultra running, you can feel like I can feel when I go for a run, if I'm going to get sick, you're always on a knife's edge when you're training at that level of sickness. And you know, when you just those two hours, Mike, because I've got babies, like, you know, I woke up a little bit too early. I can feel it in my body. Like, okay, if I don't sleep or rest well tonight, I'm going to be sick tomorrow. Um, and it's, it, and that was really the final lesson to me around how important sleep and rest is versus just throwing more activity at it. Because if you're not recovering, you're not getting stronger and you can actually feel it in your body. Um, yeah. So I want to talk about the autonomic system because I've got a friend who He's a managing director at Accenture and he's like well into it now. It's like the, he loves it. He's doing talks there and he's been sending me some stuff. And I'm, I've come to realize that I feel that for many years I was living in a panic attack without even knowing it. And I was medicating through drugs and alcohol. Um, I do a lot of things throughout the day that I feel help me regulate my nervous system. But generally there's even... Even now, I've been many years sober, this subtle anxiety, which is probably enhanced through coffee and shit like that. But can you unpack that? Because I think it's really relevant for a lot of our audience that are in high pressure gigs. They're always on. What is that? What's the autonomic system? So, you know, for as a neuroscientist, people have spent so much time thinking about the central nervous system, which is the brain. But the autonomic nervous system has really gotten the short shrift, which is... It's, it's the um, 
It's the part of the body. It's the part of your yourself that is regulating all of your basic water and power functions, making sure that your heart is, you know, speeding up when it has to, slowing down when it should. Um, it's regulating your stress responses. Um, there's two different branches. One is the sympathetic, what I call rev in the book. It revs you up, and it's the it's the stress response. And immediately afterwards, you have um, the parasympathetic, which I call restore, come in and try to calm you down, right? And so there's these twin systems that are constantly interacting on different scales. Even the inhale, that's a big um, sympathetic response. And then the, the exhale is a slow calming down of the heart rate. So, you know, basically you're gobbling up, you know, you're, tr you're trying to speed up the heart rate to get a, as much oxygen on the inhale, and then you're slowing the heart rate down when there's no more oxygen to be more efficient. So, and those are, that's one scale, right? But then there's also your fear response, like, a, you know, a sudden stress response that you're experiencing, you're going to get your hands all sweaty, you know, you're going to shunt the blood uh, and, and liquids to your extremities to make sure you can run if you need to, to make sure that you can, you know, your pin, pinpoint eyes to make sure you can see everything you need to. And then the second you realize, okay, that is, you know, the proverbial tiger is not a tiger, then you can calm yourself down, right? You can bring your heart rate right down. You can bring your liquids back to whatever was digesting or, you know, um, calming um, your mind down as well. It's very much in tune with your emotional system. And so now, um, you know, my research actually in my lab has been showing that the stuff that goes on in the central nervous system is 100% interacting with your body because your body is telling you all this information, right? And so we, and many people try to ignore this information and they just let this, as you were saying, you know, you live in this constant panic attack, right? And what is a panic attack? It's shallow breathing. It's heart is racing. It's basically like always on the edge of jumping out of your skin, right? Well, that basically means that your restore system isn't doing its job, right? It's not, it's not setting you, putting you into a state of deep breathing where you're telling your body, I have control of my breath and I have control of my environment. I have control of the world around me and I can self-regulate. I can choose when to run and I can choose when to calm down. And so much of that is controlled by your breath, something so simple. And the breath is controlled by the parasympathetic restorative system. So, and the connection between the restorative system is directly connected to your frontal lobe, which is that executive at the front of the brain that's basically making all the big decisions and you know, inhibiting this behavior and turning on that behavior and focusing your working memory and your selective attention. And the stronger your restore system, the stronger your frontal lobe, that there's a bi-directional relationship between your ability to calm yourself down and your ability to think well. And so when, you, and, and you can basically train either one of those, you can train your, um, your frontal lobes through executive function tasks and working memory and all those kind of brain games, and you'll actually see benefits to the restore system. So you can see greater, you know, heart rate variability, 
Um, you can see greater ability to calm yourself down and regulate your emotions. But you can also see that when you work on increasing your restorative response, you see better frontal lobe functioning because that's that system of self-control is interactive. So there's, you know, so there's a lot of benefit to really understanding that relationship between the um, sympathetic, parasympathetic and how it's very much related to what's going on in your brain as well. I'd be interested to know what the studies are like on individuals that live in cities versus kind of rural or a slower pace living in respect to all this stuff. Is there anything out there or is it like... There, yeah, there definitely is. So there's there's stuff out there in terms of exercise that if you exercise in nature, you bring your heart rate, you, you know, you, 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 you exercise longer and you also have a better restorative response after. So, you know, that you're, you're better able to regulate that ratio between the rev and the restore ratio. Um, so for sure, and that, that's that getting in touch with nature, right? Getting out of the cement under your feet and getting out of the, all the noise of the city and being able to just have a moment of breathing all the good phytochemicals from the, from the trees and from the, and from whatever nature you have around you. So there is, there is a lot of evidence to say that spending more time in rural nature settings is better for your health. As we start to close out, uh, Sarah, first of all, just want to really thank you for the time and the insights. Um, love the conversation and, and I really truly loved reading your books. What are, yeah, for sure. What are some habits that people could start to implement to move towards a better relationship between downstate and upstate, just simple stuff. So simple stuff I would say is in the morning, you want to set your circadian rhythm up the best way possible and to get outside in the sun to get bright light. Um, and if, and if you don't have access to bright light, if you're in, you know, a winter landscape, that's super gray, get yourself a, um, all spectrum light that, you know, that first signal of the day and just sit there for 15 minutes. Um, that first signal of the day is what sets, it's the downbeat for your whole rhythm that, that will last for the next 24 hours. It will help you be more alert during the day. Your whole arousal system will be turned on, but it'll also help you um, decrease your arousal at night and be able to keep more um, consolidated sleep at night. I would also say engage that slow, deep breathing. That, you know, that restorative um, training up that restorative response whenever you can during the day. We do so much um, halting of our breath. We stop breathing. People call it email apnea. You know, you open your computer and you just stop breathing. And so engaging that deep restorative response as much as you can to tell yourself that you've got this, that you're okay during the day. Give your cardiovascular system a break by just lying on, on the floor and put your legs up the wall, you know, instead of having to work constantly against gravity to have you pumping your blood all the way through your body. Like give that heart a break and do like 10 minutes up the wall. Um, front load your calories so that you're getting more of your nutrients when you have the highest metabolism. Think about 
think about the rhythm of your exercise. You know, the earlier you do your HIT stuff, the earlier you do cardiovascular intense stuff, the better your sleep will be. Right. So all of the all these systems are interactive. Um, so that's just I, I like to focus on what you could do during the day. And then there's obviously like, you know, a bunch of stuff that happens at night. But I think all of that sets you up for better sleep at night. One of the interesting things there, and this may be an anomaly, is I find um, because of my work during the day, if I run too early and I run hard, I get rooted during the day and like I'm a bit off the mark, particularly if I'm with clients. So I find if, whilst not ideal because my energies are low, if I run around three, it puts me in a space where I can slowly come home and then move closer into the fatigue when I need to be asleep. Does that make yeah. sense? Like yeah, it's an yeah, interesting yeah. one, but I think the key there is just, I, it's a continual experimentation for me around work, kids and, and training. But I think you would agree. It's just about being intentional, right. And finding out what works for you with your life. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because it, I mean, there's so many people who are like, well, I could never run in the morning. I've got this and that and the, you know, kids and all that, you know, and so then, okay, then figure it out. Right. Be, but, but, but I wouldn't push it to too late at night because people, you know, like there's a lot of evidence to say that that's going to harm the sleep. So what can you do within that? Just, men, you know, knowing the system, understanding how you work, then optimizing within your own abilities. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, Sarah, well, we'll leave it there. I'm going to let you go enjoy your fun in the sun there in Santa Fe. Uh, I'll, I'll be in California back home on Sunday. I'm going to be in the Bay Area for a month, oh, so nice. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, oh, that'll be great. Yeah, so where can our audience learn more about you, find the books and stuff? My website uh, is sarahmetnik.com, and that you know has links to buy the book, but it also has a ton of different videos and other podcasts and other interviews I've done and some talks and some lessons on sleep. Um, so I'm also on Twitter, um, Sarah underscore Mednick. I'm also on Instagram, um, Sarah, I love you more. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, she reveals a little bit more about herself on right? Instagram, right? Yeah, you got, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed this book. I think um, this book was, you, you showed more of your personality probably in this book. And uh, it was, yeah, it was great. Well, the first book was written with a friend of mine and he was really the writer. I was sort of more the scientist, but this book was really me uh, writing it. That's you can what, tell yeah. there's a difference. It's, 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 it's informative, obviously, but less technical, right? Yeah. It's written with your flavor, you know, so it's, yeah, really enjoyable. Highly recommended. I've already recommended it to some friends. Oh, thanks. Yeah, for sure. So anyways, we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for thanks. your time, Sarah. Have a great rest of your day.